a word of prayer and uh, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness, your love, your mercy to us. We would just pray today that you would quiet our hearts before you. There's so much that we have to learn from your word. We realize the time is very, very short. The light of that shortness of time, we pray that we will gird up our loins and that we will be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That we'll not be entangled with the affairs of this life. That we may please him who has called us to be a soldier. We reckon on the fact that we have an old sin nature, and that old sin nature constantly gives us. All right, we <clears throat> talked last time uh, about, again, the spirit of a wife reacting to the spirit of a husband, the spirit of a husband reacting to the spirit of a wife. A husband uh, can sense when his wife has not completely forgiven him, and when you have resentments for past failures, then your husband uh, will uh, not respond the way he should. And of course, there are things that he needs to learn, and we shared with you some things that you need to understand as well. Particularly, you need to understand the concept of forgiveness, total forgiveness, particularly in the light of all that Jesus Christ has forgiven you. You had a debt you could never pay, but Christ took care of that debt, totally forgave you. And uh, what he asks in return is simply that you have that same kind of response and attitude toward other people. And in particular, you need to emphasize that toward your husband. And no matter what he does, you need to have that spirit of forgiveness. How often should I forgive? Christ said, not just seven times, but 70 times seven. And of course, you understand that the number seven is the number of completeness. And uh, to be multiplied uh, by itself, uh, plus the uh, addition of the uh, the ten, uh, making it uh, seven times ten times seven, indicates that you are to forgive completely and totally, without any reservations. There's just no, there's no question about the fact that the idea of let me just show you here, if you will, seven does not is not the perfect number. That is, it does not speak. Of, of perfect, but rather of complete. Perfect in the sense of being complete. Seven days to a week. Uh, seven, uh, the seventh day, the Lord had completed uh, the uh, uh, completed the the uh, creation. Uh, it's made up of three and four. Three is the number of of solid dimension. Um, and, of course, uh, speaks of fullness. 
are only three dimensions. And uh, the Trinity and, of course, uh, the sanctuary in the future is going to be a going to be a three-dimensional cube. It's uh, uh, the idea of of uh, uh, manifestation as well, uh, because the Christ was raised on the third day. The number four, on the other hand, is the number of weakness. When you put fullness with weakness you have completeness. But the number 10 is the number of ordinal perfection. Ordinal perfection. And uh, it's, an, it's one of several firsts, new, a new first, the new, a new beginning in a sense as well. When you take 10 times 7 times 7, then you have 490, and that does not mean you count. What Christ was conveying and would be understood so clearly by those disciples is, that's the whole life. That's all there is. That means you forgive 24 hours a day, 365 and a quarter days a year, and you keep forgiving and forgiving your whole life. That's what's being talked about when we're talking about forgiveness. God wants you to totally, entirely, and completely forgive. And there's never a time where you do not forgive, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Even as. Now that's, of course, the story of forgiveness, and that's why a woman should never have any resentment in her heart toward her husband, even though he may have failed you again and again and again, even though he lets you down constantly, you should never, ever fail to forgive him. Unless, of course, you think that Christ has failed to forgive you. Now just keep it in mind, because it, it affects so many things in your life. Remember our study a few weeks ago just before we went to Scotland on Joseph. Remember what he said about Joseph. He didn't play God. He said, God meant this unto me for good. Am I, am I a God that I shouldn't forgive you? I mean, God doesn't want to forgive. That's his business. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm not a God. And he, he understood that that which had happened to him, his brothers selling him into slavery, that that had happened to save them and to save the people alive and to save a nation and to fit into God's plan and God's purpose. What if your husband sold you into slavery? Could you say, you meant it unto me for evil? The Lord meant it unto me for good? You say, I'd never forgive him. Then you'd be wrong, just as wrong as he. That's the problem. We think that when someone sins, it justifies our sin. It doesn't. It never does. Two wrongs never make a right. They just make a mess. And we're faced more and more in this day with problems of violence in marriage, in the home, wife against husband, husband against wife, children against parents. It's 
becoming a way of life in our country. And uh, it's a tragic thing. I've told you before, I'll tell you again. If I ever saw a man striking a woman, I don't think I'd be responsible for my actions. I might really, I'll tell you. Because if he wants to hit somebody, let him try to hit me. Not a defenseless woman. So I have no use for people, for men that beat their wives. But I have counseled for years wives who are battered wives to stay with their husbands and suffer for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have seen phenomenal results when a woman was willing to die. Now, I just uh, spent a couple of days down at Arrowhead Springs and uh, met a fellow by the name of Evie Hill. I mentioned this last night. If some of you are here last night, you can forgive me. But he said something that just hit home in regard to this. He wasn't even talking about this. He was talking about something else. He was talking about after the Watts riot. This fellow is a black fellow, a black pastor in Watts. And uh, he said after the Watts riot, some of the Campus Crusade folks were challenged by him, 800 of them, to come down into the Watts area and, uh, and to, uh, at the risk of their own lives, move into there and evangelize Watts. And they did it. Now, that didn't get much publicity. Newspapers didn't report that, did they? I had heard that it had happened, but this was the first I had heard a testimony. And what he was saying was, it's dangerous to be in Watts. But he said this. He said, the way I figure it is, you've got to die. You've got to die. And so you ought to die in the process of getting killed. Do you understand? He said, for goodness sakes, don't die of arthritis. Die in the process of getting killed. I like that. What could be better than to be a martyr? It's a shortcut to glory. The only woman that would run from a situation where her, her husband abuses her is a woman who's afraid to die. If you are afraid to die, then you are in bondage to Satan's usurped power. Because Satan no longer has the power of life and death. All he has is the usurped power to make you afraid to die. All their lifetime, it says in the book of Hebrews, they were subject to bondage through the fear of death. See, Satan does not have the power of death. Christ holds in his hands the keys to death and hell. Therefore, a Christian should never be afraid to die. You may not relish the idea, but you shouldn't be afraid of it. Would you be willing to die while you're forgiving? What could be greater than to be dying at the hands of someone who has become violent? And in the process of dying, say with Christ, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To say with Stephen, Father, I pray that you not lay this sin to their charge. See, Christ died forgiving. Stephen died forgiving. How will you die? Bitter? 
resentful? So you see, that's the extreme case. But I believe with all my heart that it's so vital, it is so necessary for Christians to grasp and understand that it costs, it costs to be a Christian. To be the kind of Christian God wants you to be. And all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So die. But do it forgiving. Don't ever have any resentment in your heart toward anybody. Freely you have received, freely give. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Well now, I had no intention to review that much, but we'll leave it at that. I want to move on to another point. We have to because there's so much more I'd like to share on the matter of forgiveness, but we've only got a few classes left and I want to cover this material if we can. I always hate at the end of a series where you're trying to cover the material instead of teaching a word. <laughs> it's, that's a tough one, but I don't want to leave a loose end on, the, on this particular series, so we'll do our best here. The fifth thing that we must talk about is the matter of failure to build loyalty in the children. Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child. A child left to himself will bring his mother shame. But one of the tragedies is that often a wife is guilty by actions and attitudes of driving a wedge between the child and the father. Now, the wife may just simply have attitudes of rebellion or attitudes of disloyalty that uh, really mitigate against the authority of the husband. And you may think it's a harmless thing, all in fun and all of the rest, and just a part of the ebb and flow of marriage. But when you have attitudes of rebellion against authority, those attitudes are very quickly picked up by the children. And what it does is it basically destroys the potential of their future responses to authority, particularly to the father, but also in other areas. I think if I were talking to men today, that the, the thing that I would emphasize quite at length would be that a man needs to realize that rebellion in a wife is often the fruit of neglect or often the reflection of a wounded spirit. A husband needs to search his heart and really ask himself, how have I wounded my wife's spirit to, to prompt this rebellion? One of the things, though, that I think you should realize is that this becomes a perpetuation to the third and fourth generation. Let's say you had a great-grandmother, GGM, who had deep bitterness because of something her husband did, and as a result became a very aggressive, domineering type of woman. 
those attitudes will be picked up by your grandmother. And if not checked by the grace of God, will be relayed to the mother. And you are the fourth generation. There's that. Then there's also this. In the book of Genesis, after the fall, in third chapter, it says, her, as part of the curse, her desire shall be to be over her husband, literally. That's, you know, it's the, the, let me say again that the preposition there in the Hebrew is somewhat obscure. And therefore it's been translated, her desire shall be to her husband, which doesn't fit the context. And you have to determine the meaning of the preposition by the force of the context. And the force of the context is a curse. Her desire being to her husband is not a curse. It is not, it is something that, that, uh, that idea and concept was something that was true before the fall. Her, the wife being dependent on her husband as much as the husband being dependent on the wife. And some people believe, well, it was just an, an over-exaggeration of that. But there are a lot of women who are not dependent creatures. But what the word, what the, the preposition can mean is that the wife will have a desire to be over her husband. You see a lot of that, don't you? Women who, who long to, to take over in the home and the family. And so you see, not only is there a possible heritage here, but there is the natural tendency, the old sin nature, to want to dominate. And what it says there is that a conflict is set up. She's going to want to be over her husband, but he, appointed by God, will rule over you. So a conflict is set up between God's way and man's way. The problem that men have is that they, in sin, don't understand the rulership that God has given them, and they distort that. And women don't understand that a part of the curse would be that, that they, they, by their old sin nature, would have a tremendous drive and desire to lord it over their husbands and to play one-upsmanship. Women's rights, women's liberation movement was predicted in Genesis chapter 3. So it's not surprising. It hasn't been surprising when it's happened in centuries past. But that rebellion, whether you realize it or not, can be very easily passed down to the children. Because the wife, to a great degree, shapes the attitudes. So the husband has to examine his heart and find out if he has done anything to uh, make his wife bitter and start this chain reaction. And in some cases, he'll find that that is true. So he has to really deal with that. And so what he needs to do then is, is to check the list of spiritual responses and responsibilities that are given in God's Word to, to see how he may have damaged that wife's spirit and try to do what he can to bring restoration by firm, kind, loving, servanthood leadership. There is, of course, a, a very clear passage in regard to that, in addition to the classic 
passages. The, the passage, of course, that you could uh, think of, uh, first of all, would be uh, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, of course, it, it talks about the uh, relationship of husband and wife, and it talks about the husband's responsibility to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her and so on and so forth. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, live with your wife in an understanding way uh, and uh, uh, give her respect as the weaker vessel and uh, also uh, live together as heirs of the grace of life. Perhaps the most classic passage in terms of the idea of servanthood is in Matthew chapter 20. Maybe you want to look at it for a moment. Matthew chapter 20. It gives us the pagan model of leadership and the biblical model of leadership. This is something that you need to know and understand as a, as a leader in your home in terms of your children, as leaders in other areas as well, because there's a vast difference. There are two kinds of pagan leadership. The pagan leadership is, first of all, this is in verse 25 of Matthew 20, Jesus called them, they were trying to gain some uh, prestige. Uh, James and John, his, their mother, uh, came and uh, spoke to them about the possibility of of their sons being uh, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And uh, the Lord challenged her and said, uh, you don't know what you ask uh, because uh, are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and so on. And uh, the other disciples heard it and they were really upset because they kind of had in mind that they'd like to be on the right hand or the left. And uh, they, they were looking for the place of honor. So all of them were in the same boat. And that was when Jesus called unto them and said this in verse 25, You know that the princes of Gentiles exercise dominion over them. All right, that's the first kind of pagan leadership. That's what is, could be called dominant dictatorship. In other words, they're given a position and they milk it for all it's worth and they dominate. And they become Mr. Dick Tater. That's your husband's name? Could be. In any event, uh, they're, they're that kind of individual. Now, that is a pagan model of leadership. Notice what it says. You know that the prince of the Gentiles exercise dominion. They are granted dominion by uh, Caesar, and they take that opportunity, and they, they become uh, like a little tin god. Uh, they become like a, like a four-star general. They order people around. They tell them precisely what to do and, and all of the rest. Now, there's something else, though. And they that are great exercise authority over them. There's another kind of pagan leadership. And that is what could be called charismatic control. It is a person with the flair for leadership. 
And a person who has gotten to the place where he knows how to manipulate people and how to use people, and he has risen in fame and fortune, and uh, because of that position of respect that he has gotten, not a position of dictatorship given, but a, a position where he has such a charisma. There were men in the Roman Empire that could stand before a group of people, raise their hands, and the people would cheer, and lower their hands, and they'd instantly become silent. Raise their hands and they'd cheer, lower their hands, and they'd instantly be quiet. They could control a crowd, and people would do anything they said. They inspired confidence to that place that they would just follow them to the ends of the earth. And some of those men led people to their deaths just to prove how great their leadership was. So they see there are two kinds of pagan leadership, both of which you find even today. But notice what it says in verse 26. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your diakonos, your minister, your deacon, your waiter on tables. Let him do the lowly task. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your doulos, your, your, your slave. Your bond slave, your willing slave. A bond slave was one who volunteered to be a slave because of his love for his master. They'd take him to the doorpost and they'd put a, uh, uh, an awl to his ear and they would put a punch in that ear. Many times insert an earring. And he would simply be then a bond slave. He would be a volunteer slave. No other man could touch him. He belonged to his master for life. And there was no getting out of the contract. You are to be that way in relationship to other people. You see what a good message this would be for your husband, right? He's to be the servant of the wife. Then it says this, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now the Lord Jesus Christ later on with his disciples illustrated that by coming in, girding himself with a towel, and washing the disciples' feet. And you see, if a man really understands those concepts, he can win a bitter wife back. I'm not talking to wives. I meant to husbands. I'm talking to wives, right? And therefore, you have to take the initiative to bring about some change in regard to your attitudes that you convey to your children. One of the, one of the highest priorities that you ought to have in your life and marriage is to build tremendous respect for your husband in the lives of your children. It'll pay off. Now, you know, you may, have to, you may have to scratch some with some husbands to find some good qualities because you've kind of gotten used to seeing the negative qualities. But I've never met a person yet, man or woman, who did not have some commendable qualities. Your husband may be a drunkard, and he may not provide for his family. 
Those, of course, are negative things. You dwell on those negative things and you'll become bitter and your children will be bitter and you'll all be rebelling. But there are positive things that that man has. There are things that he has provided for the family. Dwell on those things. Emphasize those things. And teach your children a respect, not for the sin of a man, but a respect for the person. Remember, he's a soul for whom Christ died. And there will be degrees here, all the way from the husband who is a no-good bum to the husband who is just worthy of respect in every sense of the word. Some of your husbands are that way, and some of them are found in between. Some of you say, well, they're kind of on the low end of the scale. All right, it's fine, but just begin to look for qualities that you can commend and build that into your children. When your children say, but daddy's drunk all the time, just say, you know, we all have faults. And if people are looking for faults, you can always find faults. But just think of all the wonderful things that Daddy has done for you. And begin to listen to him. And get him to have a new focus. When he sees that your focus is there, it'll make all the difference in the world. Judge Lebovich from juvenile court in Brooklyn, New York saw so many juveniles in the course of his years on the bench, he became very, very concerned. Began to do some research and found out that the United States has the highest rate of juvenile delinquency of any country in the world. He began to search to find out which country had the lowest rate. And after some research, he discovered that Italy had the lowest rate of juvenile delinquency in all of the world. So at his own expense, he made a trip to Italy. He spent a considerable amount of time there. And when he came back, he wrote an article which appeared in a number of journals. And the article was entitled, Nine Words to stop juvenile delinquency. And people interested in stopping juvenile delinquency read the article. And all it was was an elaboration on nine words. Here they are. Put father back at the head of the home. That was it. The only thing that had any significance at all in his research that made a difference between the lowest rate of juvenile delinquency and the highest rate of juvenile delinquency was the attitude of the father being the head of the home. Put father back at the head of the house. Now, most wives don't really understand the implications of her rebellion. And most wives would not call it what I call it, and I call it that because that's what God calls it, all right? 
I, I, I just do not, I do not, uh, uh, as I've stated before, I do not like or appreciate the way Satan gets us to soften terms. I shared that last a week ago, Sunday morning, uh, a week and a half ago, with my people, just on the on the the, the various things that we that we we, we we soften in this day and age. God calls things certain things. He gives them a good definition from a divine perspective, and we ought to call it that. And women do not like the term rebellion. A woman comes in for counsel. I'll sometimes, after she's told her story, I say, I'm surprised at you as a professing Christian that there would be so much rebellion in your heart. Rebellion? I don't have any rebellion. You know, they don't like that. But God calls it rebellion. And God has some choice words to say about rebellion. Hopefully, we'll get to those in a few moments. So it's rebellion. And you need to check your own heart. You need to realize that any resistance to your husband's will, any resistance to his authority, is rebellion. Don't blame the causes. Don't say, well, he did this and he did that and he did the other thing. Deal with yourself. You can't deal with him. You deal with yourself. Deal with your own heart. God's Word says that wives are to submit to their husbands as they would to the Lord. And if you do not submit to your husband as we should to the Lord, if you do not respond to him as the body does to the head, if you do not respond to him as, as one who, who views him as Lord, why did Sarah call Abraham Lord? She viewed him as Lord. Her absolute sovereign, her absolute master, they say, but that's not popular today. I mean, no woman would be caught dead calling her husband Lord. But the scripture says if you do, you do well. You're to have a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. That meekness, again, is an attitude exercised chiefly toward God, whereby you accept the things that happen to you as being right and good and from God's hand. And therefore, you accept what happens without disputing or resisting. It has nothing to do with an attitude toward a husband. It has to do with an attitude toward God. When you say, but my husband did this, you are demonstrating a wrong attitude toward God. Quietness is not the outward tranquility that comes when everything is right, but rather the inward tra tranquility which affects the outward tranquility with peace. All of that's in 1 Peter chapter 3. You are to, to have such a sweet spirit that without a word, without preaching, without making your husband feel ashamed of himself, by total support of that husband and a, a submissive and obedient spirit, you're able to win your husband. It's quite a project, quite a mission field. You see, the tragedy of it is that so often we don't realize that we are perpetuating those attitudes to the next generation. And we will reap what we sow. 
There are six basic wrong attitudes, and I just uh, wish that we had a long time to talk about these because there's some. They're very, very important. Very important for fathers. Fathers are learning them gradually as we're getting to them in the Book of Proverbs. But there are six basic ways that uh, wrong attitudes really that the Proverbs emphasizes in reference to the father-child relationship. Let me list them for you, and we'll just uh, cover them as we have time. We've got to leave a few minutes at the end here, so I'm going to have to move along. But first of all, there's mocking. Secondly, there's wasting. Thirdly, there's cursing. Robbing. attitude of the fool and a companion of the riotous. We'll explain that. We'll come to it, okay? Mocking, wasting, cursing, robbing, the fool, and companion riotous. Now, it's there are a lot of other attitudes and wrong things like this corner and so on. But all of these are given particularly in relationship to the father-child relationship. Remember that the, the use of male terms like the father and the son, the mother and the son, uh, includes the daughter as well. It's just the, the type of uh, language that was used in terms of relaying the information. It, the idea of the son is in a generic sense and therefore uh, refers to refers to a son or daughter, either one, in most cases. All of these are related to rebellion. And that's why we, we want to touch on them right here. Now, I want to turn to them, but we want to do this as quickly as possible, because I dare not give you a complete resume of all of these. We'd just be here too long. It's taken me eight years to get through ten chapters of Proverbs, so... We're I'll give you an idea how fast I go. Proverbs 30 in verse 17. The eye that mocketh at his father and despiseth to obey his mother. Now, mind you, there's good study in regard to the mother-child relationship, too. We're not going to touch on that because we're concerned right now about the attitudes that children develop toward the father that come as a result of rebellion. But the eye that mocketh at his father and despiseth to obey his mother... The ravens of the valley shall pick it out, and the young eagles shall eat it. Not a very pretty picture. The word mock is the word la'ag, and the word means to laugh at, to ridicule, to make fun of. Actually, it comes from a root that means to imitate the voice of one that is in derision. Christ, when he was on the cross, moaning and groaning, it says they mocked him. What it means is that they moaned and groaned like he was groaning. Can you imagine? Groaning, just, oh, oh. And they would stand there and say, oh, oh. You see what I mean? That's mocking. Mocking is, is ridiculing, making fun of, poking fun at. Do you ever make fun of your husband in front of your children? That's a deep question. Do you ever make fun of your husband in front of your children? Now, there's a whole lot of difference between laughing with someone and laughing at them. You have to be very, very careful because there's a fine line between them. And children will pick up the subtle difference between laughing at them and laughing with them. Children will enjoy a good joke at a husband's expense where everybody can laugh about it. 
where something silly has happened. There's nothing wrong with that. But laughing at them when they make a mistake is devastating. Proverbs 19.26 Proverbs 19.26 He that wasteth his father and chaseth away his mother is a son that causeth shame and bringeth reproach. Wasting is shadad. It means, literally, to be burly. The concept is to bully or to practice violence. You know, we used to laugh at cartoons in the paper about when a husband said something wrong and all of a sudden all the dishes from the kitchen come flying, you know, kind of thing. It used to make a, you know, everybody seemed to think that was funny. U.S. News and World Report a few months ago came out with a, an article on the battered woman and revealed, it revealed something that was astounding. As they did research in trying to find out statistics on husbands who beat their wives, they found, of course, that there was a great number of unreported cases, women who just did not tell anybody because of the shame of it. So they dug deeper than merely the police statistics. They began to do research in homes and getting confidential information. Do you know what they found out? They found out that the increase in wife beatings is not nearly as dramatic as the increase in husband abuse. Wives who assault their husbands. And those go almost, unless a gun or a knife is used in their serious injury, very seldom are those reported. But in as they dug deep and researched the thing, they found out that, that husbands were going to doctors and and being treated for lacerations and tell them that, I, well, I got in a fight at the bar. And actually, they've been beaten up on by their wives. And rather than strike back, they took the abuse. In many cases, you know, everything from a poker to uh, a stove poker to, to uh, a knife was used. And the increase is dramatic, more dramatic than anyone would want to believe of wives assaulting their husbands. Now, don't go home and say, I never thought of that. That's a good idea. I'm not trying to plant ideas. I'm trying to give you some facts here. But you see, rebellion can cause these acts of violence. And you, you hit your husband in a rage, even knowing that you can't hurt him. But beating on him, all of, what does the child learn in seeing that kind of conduct? move on. Look at Proverbs 30, verse 11. There is a generation that curseth their father and does not bless their mother. Look at chapter 20 and verse 20. Whoso curseth 
his father or his mother, his lamp shall be put out in obscure darkness. Great judgment for one who curses his father or mother. In fact, to give you an idea of God's attitude toward it, in Exodus 21:17, it tells us that he that curseth his father or his mother shall be put to death. Do you want to know something? This word curseth is the word kalal. Don't think that that means that you have to use swear words. What this means is simply to make light of just to make light of. Your child comes along and says, uh, Daddy told me to do such and such. And you say, Oh, what does he know about that? A very common statement, right? What are you doing? You're making light of what he said. One of the biggest problems the nation of Israel had was they cursed God. You say, You mean they shook their fists and said, God, I dare you to do anything to me? No. They just took his word lightly. God said, that's sin. And they said, oh, come on. It's not that bad. They curse God. Do you ever curse your husband? Do you ever, do you ever say, uh, he doesn't know anything about that. He's a man. Do you ever say, uh, that's stupid. That's just plain dumb. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Do you ever say to your husband, you're always doing dumb things? See what I'm saying? What are you doing? You're making light of him. And you're teaching your children to curse him. And their lamp's going to be put out. Oh, see, there's a lot more we can talk about here. Proverbs 28. Through the spirit of self-control. Boy, I'm sure being tested today on that point. Proverbs 28, 24. Whoso robbeth his father or his mother and saith it is no transgression, the same is a companion of a destroyer. Now the word rob is the word gazelle. And that simply, literally, means to rip off. Did you know that? That's a good biblical word, rip off actually means to pluck off. But uh, rip off would be a good translation of it. He that rips his father off. The interesting thing about this is that it means to take by fraud or violence or in some uh, unseemly manner. You say, well, I never robbed my husband. That would be no problem. Do you ever run up bills without talking it over with him first? And on this case, you see, you haven't said anything to your children about it. Unless some women do this, you know, they say to the kids, don't say anything to your father. It'll be bad enough when he gets the bill, you know, but I, I bought such and such. You, women do that as well. But what happens is the husband gets the bill and comes in and says, honey, what's this bill for $100 from what such and such? Oh, I, I just bought a few little things. And the husband says, honey... Now, we can't make ends meet if you keep doing things like that. What do the children pick up? Then you say to him, Oh, honey, it's not so bad. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. You know? 
he that robs his father and says, there's nothing wrong with that. There's judgment involved to the child that does that. Where does he learn it? Then, of course, there's the whole thing about the fool. Proverbs 17, verse 21. 17, 21. Here's a very interesting thing. It says this, He that begatteth a fool doeth it to his sorrow. Who begats a fool? Well, you could say that the father does, but the mother as well uh, is in, involved in that aspect. And the word for fool there is the word kasil, which means an obstinate child, a stubborn child. The, the word literally means fathead. And uh, it, it's, it's a person who is, is, is dense uh, and um, a person who, who, is, who is slow at uh, getting his brain going and all of that. But it leads to impiety. And uh, actually, actually, it is that uh, area of obstinacy in which he has set his heart on a particular thing and uh, comes to the place where he, no matter how you reason with him, or no matter how you counsel him, he's not going to change. And he just says, that's the way I am. But then the second word is this. He that begatteth a fool doeth it to his sorrow. And the father of a fool, there's a different word for fool. Nabal. Nabal means to fall as withered fruit. In other words, to be fruitless. One who has wasted his life. One who has become a victim of his own passions. And thus has wasted his life. And what happens is this. That when there is the, the impious attitude of Cassiel. His life will be that of a Nabal. Now if you go to Proverbs 17 verse 25 you'll see a foolish son is a grief to his father and a bitterness to her that bore him. That's again Cassiel, the fathead. And Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 13 says a foolish son is the calamity of his father and the contentions of a wife are continual dropping. See the relationship there. The foolish son comes because of the contentions of a wife. Isn't that tragic? A wife who makes a contest out of her marriage. The wife who insists to contend with her husband. Now the last one we want to talk about is in Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28 and verse 7. Whoso keepeth the law is a wise son, but he that is the companion of the gluttonous not the gluttonous men, you'll notice that's in italics, but the gluttonous or the riotous, shameth his father. But now the word riotous is the word zalal. And zalal means loose, no self control. 
translated in some translations, gluttonous, because that was the illustration Scripture so often uses of a person who lacks self-control. He becomes gluttonous. But the word itself means loose. It means no self-control. It means one who can't run a tight ship, if you please. A child learns to be a companion of loose people with no self-control, often when he has been the companion of such a person in the home. And in some cases, it could be the mother who lacks self-control. We need disciplined women. Women who are able to discipline themselves, bring themselves under control, and do the thing that God wants them to do so that the child learns self-discipline. Now, as you can see, this is a whole study in itself. We could spend a year just talking about these things and the way attitudes are built into children. But we don't have time to do that today. I have to show you one last verse. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Just very quickly, the setting of this story is that the king had been commanded by God to kill the Amalekites. He refused to do it. He did kill some of them. But he saved the king, Agag, and he saved some of the sheep and the cattle. And when when Samuel came and said, have you performed the commandment of the Lord? Saul said, yes, I performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, the bleeding of sheep is drowning out what, did you, what you're saying. What did you say? Oh, the bleeding of the sheep. Oh, oh, well, the peep, I saved a few of these sheep for sacrifices for the people because the people wanted that. And what Samuel said was that if you do not obey in every point, then you're guilty of disobedience. He said, but we, we, we saved them to sacrifice them. And that was when he said in verse 22, Hath the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Do you really think that God is impressed with your sacrifice when you're living in disobedience? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Keep that in mind. You may come to church every Sunday. You may go through all of the rituals of the church. You may teach a Sunday school class and do all kinds of other wonderful things. But if you are not obedient to God, then you are not impressing God at all with all your work. You say, well, what areas do I have to be obedient? Everything that he has said. And he has said, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. He has said that you are to be a submissive, obedient, faithful wife. That's God's command. Now, you can take it or leave it. But if you're going to take it, it's only then that you can call yourself obedient. Otherwise, you have to call yourself disobedient. Now... Samuel gave a significant principle that we have to understand in regard to God's attitude toward disobedience and rebellion. And here's what he said. Verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. How many witches do we have here today? They say, well, hey, wait a minute. You know, I would never do anything like that, wouldn't you? Notice what he said. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, but there's no verb. 
Which means that it is saying in loud, unmistakable terms, rebellion equals witchcraft. How's that? Well, now the usual word for witchcraft is not used. The usual word for witchcraft is kasaf. But the word that's used here is the word kesam. Totally different word. Kesam means satanic activity. Got it? Before we finish, look at Isaiah. Hold your finger there. Isaiah chapter 14. What is basic satanic activity? Verse 12, Isaiah 14. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground who did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will. I will. I will. I will. I will. Five times. I will be like, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also upon the mount of congregation, the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Who's the author of rebellion? Who's the inventor of rebellion? Who is the one that says, he has no right to rule over me? Who is the one that invented that idea? Where does it come from? It comes straight from the pit. He said, my husband does not have the right to rule over me. Really? It is a God-ordained authority. To resist that authority is to resist God. Just like Satan resisted God and was cast down from heaven. Look at his judgment. Yet thou shalt be brought down to Sheol, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the one who made the earth to tremble, who did shake the kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness, destroyed its cities, and opened not the house of his prisoners? Devastation! Because of rebellion. Rebellion is at the heart of the whole thing. The humanist idea is that man is autonomous, right smack in the center of everything. Everything revolves around man. And God can be out here for those that need him. But man is the center. And what happens to me is what happens to, it happens to be important. And if it happens to be bad as far as I'm concerned, the way I view it, then it's not good. If it's good as far as I'm concerned, then it's perfectly all right. And morality is conditioned on whether or not I like it. It's immoral if I don't like it. It is moral if I do like it. That's satanic rebellion. Because you see, God is at the center and everything revolves around Him. And your happiness doesn't mean two whits. It's God's happiness that counts. Pleasing you doesn't mean a thing. It's whether God is pleased. And the world will always be devastated as long as man is at the center with the Satan, satanic idea that he will be like the Most High. He'll take the place of God. And the result is that man, in his rebellion, has dethroned God and as a result of that, there's devastation on every hand. Now, I just want to say something. We have gone like this for a number of years in the United States. 
The humanist idea has been taught in our schools. It is the basis for most of the media. It is the basis for most of our government. I want to ask you a question. How are they doing? How are they doing? How many happy, fulfilled, satisfied women have you seen in the women's liberation movement? Rebelling against authority. Listen. Those women are so frustrated. And they're getting worse. Every time I see some of these characters on television, they, they look worse. You ever notice that? They just, they're more tense than ever before. And they're blaming it on everybody else. They don't realize it's their own rebellion that's killing them. Some of those gals are younger by far than they look. They are hardened, bitter, rebellious women. You want to look like that? You want to look like Jesus Christ. But Christ, remember, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Well, he was fulfilled, though. And the deepest sense of the word, he had happiness. And the only way that you're going to have happiness is to get God back to center. And first thing God's going to say to you is, all right, you want my authority over your life? All right. Number one test. Yield to your husband. Oh, no, Lord, not that. Okay, you be God. Run your own life. When you get tired of that, come back. Go back to our text. I feel a sermon coming on. i got to quit. Not done yet. Rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Iniquity and idolatry? Stubbornness? See, rebellion and stubbornness are linked together. What he did, he did as an act, a satanic act of rebellion. In just not doing what God told him to. But he also was stubborn about it. And in order to understand stubbornness, you have to look at what he said. It is as iniquity and idolatry. Now what, pray tell, does iniquity and idolatry have to do with stubbornness? Here it is. Don't ever forget this. Iniquity is the word aven. And what it means is that work which, which has no real substance or meaning. It is doing something that God calls vanity. That God calls empty. That God says is not right. What it is, what iniquity is, is saying, I will make my own rules. I'll make my own rules. Rebellion is putting yourself in the place of God. Stubbornness is where you say, I will make my own rules. See how they're related? What's idolatry? Well, the word idolatry is the word teraphim in this case, which simply means an idol. But in this context especially, it means I will make my own God. 
Because you see, the teraphim was a man-made God. So therefore, you say, number one, you say, I will. Exerting your own will against the will of God. Then, I will, I will be as God. I will make up my own rules, and I'll make my own God. And when you do that, you bring about your own destruction. Because God will not tolerate any of this. And be brought into judgment. But worse than that, you'll pass it on to the next generation. The people of Israel followed this pattern. They didn't like what God told them to do, so they said, I'm going to be as, my, I'm going to be as God myself. I'm going to decide what I'll do. I'm going to be an autonomous man, a self-made man. I'm going to worship my own creator. You'll get that when you get home. I'm going to make up my own rules. I'm going to decide what's right or wrong from my base of humanism. And not only that, I'll make my gods to suit me. I'll shape them in the fashion that I want. I want a god I can control. Therefore, I'll make my own gods. It's rebellion and stubbornness. And when you read in the, New, in the Old Testament about the nation of Israel, you'll find that they perpetuated these three concepts from Saul onward. Generation after generation fell into idolatry, into making their own rules, doing their own thing, following iniquity, idolatry, and witchcraft. Simply setting themselves up in that satanic activity. Now, understanding that, do you realize what you're passing on to the next generation? I have uh, an awful lot of study in this whole question of divorce and all of the rest, as most of you know. And I hear people more and more decrying the idea of holding a marriage together for the sake of the children. I want to tell you something. There's a lot you should do for the sake of the children. First of all, you should do everything in your power to hold the marriage together. Your example of suffering will have a tremendous impact on them. Secondly, after you get married, for the sake of the children, you should not remarry. All kinds of scripture I could give you for why you shouldn't remarry in addition, but this is just another point. You should not remarry. And I'll tell you, one of the biggest reasons why you should not remarry is because when, when your child sees you remarry, he will get the idea there's an out in his marriage. He, it, it's inevitable. And when the going goes rough, he can always lay back and say, Ah, but guess what? Mom got remarried. I can get divorced and get remarried too. And it doesn't matter what you say about it being wrong or happening before you were saved or anything else. There will always be that example. Unless, of course, after you've done it and after the fact, you teach that child that it was sin. You teach him it was sin. And he'll never use that as an excuse. And then teach him the consequences as well. But you see, if you don't remarry, you suffer. No question about that. 
you suffer for the sake of your children to set an example that marriage is for life. One man for one woman. Isn't that the kind of lesson you want to teach your kids? You just go ahead and remarry and then try to teach your kids that. It'll never work. So the suffering continues. And as you go through life, you begin to realize here is a tremendous, tremendous opportunity for me to teach a lesson that will spare the next generation by saying, son, daughter, you be careful who you marry. Because when I married, I married out of the will of God. Or after we got married, we were out of the will of God. We didn't stay close to the Lord. You can teach them that lesson too, that even when you marry someone that's a Christian, someone's a fine Christian, they need to they need to know and to understand that sin can come in and destroy that marriage as well. Whatever the case was in your situation, you can teach them those lessons. And as you teach those lessons, what an impact you'll have on that generation. But you rebel against your husband. And you will perpetuate that in them. And you want to study it? You go ahead and do it. Because that is the history of the United States. In the whole marriage question. When there were, was the attitude that marriage was for life and that the wife had no right, right to rebel against her husband, children very seldom rebelled against their parents. But today, rebellion against parents is in vogue and very common because rebellion on the part of wives is so rampant going to get worse. But we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Let's let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. Let's bow in prayer. Perhaps you are guilty of attitudes like rebellion and stubbornness. Those are just a couple basic attitudes that we've dealt with, but you can see there probably are other attitudes that could have been talked of at length as well. But when you have attitude of rebellion or any other wrong attitude, you will tend to convey that to your children, who in turn will bring you shame. Why don't you right now just purpose in your heart to build a new level of loyalty and honor and trust in your husband. Teach them by your example of honoring your husband to honor their father and their mother that it may be well with them and that their days may be long on the earth. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in us, Father, and lead us in the everlasting way. Father, I pray that these concepts would be indelibly printed in our hearts and lives today. And we thank you and praise you for your teaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.